everyone. This is Sandy Vartharaja, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. In this episode, I sat with Neil Badlivala, who is the CEO and co-founder of Paired Team. Neil and his co-founder, Cassie Choi, founded Pair in 2019 after they experienced how critical a high-functioning administrative team is to provide quality primary care. Pair is backed by Kleiner Perkins, Prof Ventures, and Y Combinator. Neil is an engineer by training and previously worked at Forward, UCSF, and Delphix. Hope you enjoy the episode. Good morning, Neil. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So before we dive in, I need to ask a couple of questions about your background. It looks like there's a lot of interesting art behind you. Do you know the story behind any of these paintings? Oh, (laughs) no, other than the fact that my sister is her own interior designer. And this has actually changed so many different times. She's moved into the house over six months and it's literally gone from this wall to that wall to another wall. And this is where it is. Let's see if it's final resting place. Yeah, <laughs> it, looks, yeah. it looks pretty good. It looks like a museum. It does look like a museum. It's a very productive quarantine hobby to have as well. <laughs> yeah. Professional so, shuffler. Yeah. So let's dive into the meat of our conversation today, which is about your journey to healthcare. Can you walk our listeners through your career to date? Yeah, sure. It really starts with, so I was I was born in the U.S. in Florida, but I moved at a really young age when I was just under two years old to uh, India and Singapore, spending most of my life in India. I'm Indian by origin. And growing up abroad set a lot of who I am today. I grew up in international schools, you know, kind of friends coming in and out, but it also grew up with kind of observing the socioeconomic disparities that, that surrounded me. Across from our school, there was this, it's called a jugi. The English term for that is, is slum. And so every Thursday, we would have kids from the slum come over to our school in a community organization called Reach Out. And we would play with the kids, kind of have a snack with them. And there was this nursing station uh, that was always there. And I remember being there next to the nurse, uh, just being the helping hand of giving out bandages and ointment and whatnot. But it really set me on my path to know that healthcare is where I was going to spend the majority of my career. And then I got into college. I did pre-med, like most who get in the field, but found a passion in engineering. So I'm an engineer by trade, wasted a bunch of college credits doing the pre-med path, but then moved over to Silicon Valley, started my career low-level bits and bytes, operating systems, databases, AI and machine learning. I had a small consulting firm where we got to do some ML on drone footage and um, some cool projects like that. And uh, did some medical research at UCSF on pneumonia, using ML to detect pneumonia with sound. And then finally got involved in healthcare technology at a company called Forward. Forward was amazing. It was, for the listeners who don't know it, it's kind of like if one medical and the Apple store came together and had a baby, it was Forward, concierge, high-end primary care that was just delightful. So really focused on building technology from its very core and creating great patient experiences. That was where I met my co-founder and also where we got a chance to build out clinics from first principles from the ground up. And it taught me a lot about how to scalably engage patients and how to integrate technology into the clinical workflow. And then from there, you know, after spending a few years there as kind of an early employee, made a bunch of great friends, but ultimately wanted to step back and work on things that were a little bit more accessible. At Forward, we're starting at the Tesla Model S and working our way down. But unfortunately, just due to how to grow a business, we're kind of locked into a more affluent patient population. 
And um, I wanted to build something a little bit more accessible. And that kind of gets me into pair team. And I'm happy to, happy to go into that. Yeah. So walk us through the decision to found your own venture. There are several companies in the landscape now that are targeting potentially lower income or vulnerable populations, but it sounds like you were able to identify this niche area when you were at Forward. And then how did you get from there? You know, Walk us through the calculus to go from there to founding your own company and even applying to YC. Yeah. So I think before anything, I'm, I'm a technologist and I'm an optimist. So the driving force for example, my, when I knew that I wanted to start Pair Team, my co-founder got proposed to on Friday. And I was like, I need to work with Cassie, who's a registered nurse who, I, you know, we just loved each other at Forward. I messaged her immediately and I said, congratulations, can we meet for lunch? Met on Sunday, two days later, and I proposed to her to be a co-founder. So she got proposed to twice that weekend. And the, the reason was because I knew that the way that primary care in the country the way it works right now can be much better. I know this because I built a better version at Forward. The way that work is done in primary care clinics, the way that doctors are supported doing this work can be shifted due to technology, due to the ability of remote work. A lot of the traditional functions that happen in primary care should not happen in the clinic. They can be moved offsite. You can empower the doctor with kind of a virtual executive assistant. You can give them automation tools. You can build all of these things that move work out of the clinic, help them focus on what really matters, which is patient relationships and patient care and not all the other cruft that lives around it. And I was so drawn to that, that we can change the way that work is done in primary care and make it better for patients. And I also had this kind of chip on my shoulder of like, hey, I kind of want to start a technology company and someone said, you just got to will it into existence. That's how a lot of this stuff is. And so I've just been pushing on that because ultimately we have primary care deserts. We have a lot of people who have no health literacy for no fault of their own. They just have a lot of things going on. So I ask myself, is it the responsibility of the person to be taking care of themselves? Yes, in some cases, but I also think that underlying infrastructure should be there to support them. And we're missing that. Yeah. What I find so inspiring about your story is oftentimes when we talk about the problems around primary care and healthcare in the U.S., the solution tends to be, well, let's rebuild it from the ground up versus let's actually identify inefficiencies and build solutions for those so that we can empower providers and help them have really strong relationships with their patients and enable that, those patients to manage their care. So I'd love to talk yeah. about that later in the conversation, but for now, let's dive into the Medicaid market. So as I understand it right now, one of your go-to-market strategies is strongly focused on Medicaid. So for mm -hmm. folks who are listening, who aren't familiar with the market, it spend totals well over $600 billion annually. That's about 16% of healthcare spend in the US. About upwards of 80 million people are enrolled in Medicaid and CHIP currently. So that's nearly a quarter of the US population. So clearly it's a massive market. There's been a lot of investment activity for various companies that we'll discuss in a little bit. But each of these companies is solving for kind of a different layer and different problem in the Medicaid healthcare market. So let's unpack that a little bit at a landscape level. Can you walk us through some of the challenges that exist within the Medicaid primary care landscape today? Sure. I mean, you nailed it, which is the first part is Medicaid as a financier of healthcare is the largest. It has the largest population, one of the highest spends. I think it's like right in parallel with total Medicare spend. And it's a massive number of people, you know, one out of four, one out of five, depending on how you count it. But that's 
So many people depend on Medicaid, yet it is given such little attention by our infrastructure. And so kind of walking through a little bit of how, how it works. So Medicaid is highly fragmented. Unlike Medicare, Medicare Advantage, there are no national standards. So everything is kind of done state by state. It all gets financed through state budgets. And we've actually seen a huge, huge budget shortfall due to COVID, which kind of accelerated the enrollment of Medicaid members. At one point, people were expecting the state budget shortfalls to surpass that of the Great Depression. One of the large driving factors there being Medicaid enrollment within the state. And no one is really focusing or very few are focusing on this problem. So you have the states who are financing it all. You have the health plans underneath them. So in Medicaid, the largest, it's about 70%, I believe, is in managed care, which is people find a little surprising. So managed care is eating the healthcare industry. That is just the way that it is trending. You can see that through the explosive growth of Medicare Advantage. That's actually already happened in Medicaid and Medicaid managed care. And so these Medicaid managed care organizations, there are, call it just for easy math, about uh, 300 of them across the US and less than 5% of them are multi-state, meaning that 95% of them are local to a single state. This creates, this is one of the fragmentation issues, makes it very hard to coordinate care across other managed care organizations. And then even at the clinical level, you have about 50% of the provider network delivered through federally qualified health centers and independent rural clinics. Think a doctor's office who is taking 50 visits a day in a good location. Sometimes they might go up to 70. And that's seven minutes per visit. They have half the staff of a Medicare Advantage clinic or a Medicare commercial clinic, and they have twice the patient panel. So these folks are just very overwhelmed. So fragmented and overwhelmed across the industry. And that has been why we, we decided to focus on it, because the issue here isn't incentives. Everyone's actually, I want to, at some point, I want to talk about the creator and passion economy, because I think there's a lot of parallels here. But everyone's heart is in it for the right reason. The doctor, you know, any doctor who serves in the, or clinician who serves in the Medicaid population could go across the street and get a much higher paying job at the local hospital. They do it because they're for the community. So we want to support them because the underlying issue is their operational capabilities. Yeah. Let's double click on the parallels with creator and passion economy. I'm, I'm curious what you have to say there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's this really great article by this fellow Ben Lee, which I read like three times. And it kind of bolstered this idea that what we need to be doing is empowering the individual. And the individual, that's kind of the, the idea of the creator economy is empower the individual. The individual is it's usually done in like content creation. So like think YouTube or TikTok or things like that, which might sound silly at first, but there are, you know, it's empower the individual to help them create a sustainable life of them for them doing what they love to do. And this came about through like YouTube had like the initial ad revenue and all of that jazz and TikTok now empowers individuals even more. But if you think about this, one of these clinicians at a Medicaid clinic, aren't they doing what they're passionate about, but are kind of getting taken advantage of by the system because they aren't receiving proper compensation for it? They aren't receiving the proper resources for it. So I think as a system, we need to be enabling them to do what they love. At the same time, this goes back to your point on why not just build a full stack provider? Why not just take over and become a primary care office and build your own clinics? Well, that isn't going in the path of enablement, of treating these folks as passionate creators in the healthcare industry to serve their population. And I think that is ultimately going to 
improve the entire infrastructure of the healthcare system at scale. You mentioned that you met your co-founder, Cassie, at Forward, but tell us a little bit more about that story and why you pinpointed her as your ideal partner in crime in starting Pair. Yeah, yeah. So at Forward, Cassie and I were always really close. I remember her, so she's a registered nurse, and she taught me how to uh, draw blood on an orange. <laughs> I taught her how to debug the JavaScript console. So we had these like very, you know, we're kind of two peas in a pod from the very beginning. I remember a, a 3 a.m. night where I was coding on something and I turned around and Cassie's there like stocking inventory for the clinic. And it's like those moments where you build the camaraderie where you're like in the trenches with someone. But what I respect the most about Cassie is the way she learns and grows as an individual. Like she is a nurse, right? She taught me that she was a cardiac care nurse, right? Like super high intense ICU type care. Someone has a heart attack or something. She reaches her hand back and expects, you know, her teammate to put epinephrine or something in her hand. I'm not a doctor, whatever it is, and fix the situation. So that's where she comes from. But then here she is in the tech world, very pretty different than where she comes from. And she's thriving. She is learning how to do things that she was never trained how to do, but she is just such a curious, hungry individual that wants the best for patients. It's quite inspiring to see. And, you know, we're both learning and growing. And that's kind of one of the the pieces that make us such a good match is we value that so much together. And so I'm excited to build this company and kind of do new things with Cassie. The other piece I would say is uh, someone said, you should, you should have a co-founder who you could live with, who you could be a roommate with, and we give you roommates. <laughs> <laughs> I love that as a barometer. I also love you know, not only that she is a woman co-founder, which is very rare in the venture-backed healthcare tech space, but also she's a nurse, which I think is interesting. A lot of other sort of clinically oriented leaders, uh, new ventures in healthcare tend to be physicians. So I don't know if you have any commentary there, but I I thought that piece was a little interesting. I totally agree. I think it's rare. I think Cassie's, you know, I hope that as we grow pair team, Cassie becomes kind of a signal for other nurses to enter this field. And you need more clinicians to develop product. You don't want someone non-clinical to be developing product and making those decisions. And, um, Cassie has an eye for it. And hopefully, you know, she's doing some work with a Northeastern and hopefully she can be the driving force to help pull more nurses, more clinicians into product development and building the tools to support each other. Let's focus on tech-enabled outpatient services and Medicaid specifically. You've said in the past that the big opportunities are in long-term care, CBO engagement, and primary care. Can you walk our listeners through each of those opportunities and why do these matter for Medicaid beneficiaries? Sure. So I'll talk about patient care and what's best there. And then I'll talk on the, on the financials uh, for these individual practices because, you know, no, no margin, no mission. And so from the care side, I was talking to someone at Commonwealth Care Alliance who's been treating Medicaid dual eligible patients for 50 plus years. They have probably the most data on Medicaid patients available And I asked her uh, directly, what makes the biggest impact to care? Without missing a beat, she said uh, LTSS programs. Long-term support service programs are the ones to help patients who need support on activities of daily living. Just getting by. It is getting someone into their home to help them to help them live and help them live comfortably. You know, it is getting someone who has a, the name is skipping me, but back issues or spinal issues, helping them get a new bed. 
and help them get a new bed for $500 and then save the $25,000 that would come from a surgery. It is those sorts of programs that make the biggest dent in the Medicaid population. And then on actually reducing both increasing quality of care and reducing LTSS programs. Uh, the issue there is there's an underlying lack of supply within cities. Someone like City Block is actually trying to help improve this and increase the amount of supply within a city. Then you have CBOs, so community-based organizations. Ultimately, it's because healthcare is local. You know, I think people try to, even with the advent of virtual care, when, you know, things really hit the fan, you need to go see a local doctor and you need to go see a local clinician. And so these community-based organizations understand their patients, understand what they, where they go, where they operate, how to build trust. For example, a company like Live Chair, which is putting doctors off, uh, clinicians inside of barbershops, amazing company, right? But they're kind of redefining what community-based organizations can look like. And then primary care is about connecting the patient with those entitled, what you call, you know, from an insurance perspective, they'd call entitlements, but it's connecting them with these local resources because a patient doesn't actually know where to go. They, health literacy is a big problem here. And so, and they trust their primary care doctor to do what's best for them. For example, we had a plan out in California that had about, that it actually had spare capacity for their, their long-term term support service program. And it wasn't because there weren't enough people to join the program. It was because people didn't know. And ultimately it is their primary care's responsibility to inform the patient and get them enrolled. And that'll make a impact right away. Someone will be at their home, you know, the next day to help them live their life. And that's so important for a patient who has so much going on and it's also struggling with health issues. They, it's, it's so important. It's kind of our responsibility to provide that for them, especially if we know that there is the supply to deliver that support. Yeah, I love the way you describe primary care being sort of the healthcare Sherpa for all of these different resources. I know as an example in, in the LTSS market, even determining eligibility and getting enrolled in these programs is a months long process, even if you know about it. And so the first hurdle is finding out that you have these programs at your disposal. The second is getting enrolled. And one of the big limiting factors there is technology. Like a lot of state government systems are on these outdated code bases that people don't even know how to QA anymore. <laughs> so I think that's a nice segue into what the role of technology is in, in serving all these different submarkets. So you talked a little bit earlier in the analogy with the creator economy on enabling the individual versus building something anew from the ground up. So what are the merits of wraparound services, meaning create a set of services and technologies that surround the provider or the patient to enable them in their current role versus building something de novo, like building the full stack from the ground up? What are the merits of each of these? I imagine there's pros and cons to both approaches. Yes, yes. So let's talk about building your own full stack provider, which by the way, I don't think is wrong by any means. It's a different purpose and it'll have different outcomes and has different challenges. One of the big things that just comes off top of mind is if you look at all of the venture capital that's gone into Oak Street, Iora, et cetera, it is, it's billions of dollars. If you look at the actual percentage of patients that they're able to, that they're able to touch, it's one and a half percent of the population, 1%. It is, it's a drop in the bucket when you look at such a big market like healthcare and making massive change at an infrastructure level. And so I think that's one thing to consider. It is incredibly hard to scale. And at the same time, I think another kind of challenge in that is always going to be provider recruitment. I think that's also just a rate limiting factor for the scale of growth 
here, not only the capital required to build out brick and mortar, but also to recruit these doctors to join the team and kind of innovate here. And then, but on the flip side, you also are able to control the experience. You're able to provide a really high quality care, make sure, you know, care coordination is never an issue internally, all of that, getting people to kind of follow your care plans and whatnot that has a lot of data behind it, et cetera. So that's kind of the full stack side. Ultimately, we chose the provider enablement side because the benefits are that you can achieve scale much more rapidly in a much more asset light way. And there's tens, if not, I can't confirm this number, tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars that have already been spent on existing primary care infrastructure. There's already the local office. There's already your rural doctor's office. There, you know, these clinics already exist. What are they going to just go away? <laughs> you know, so we might as well take that and build on top of it as opposed to, um, and this is how the scale is kind of achieved, um, as opposed to building de novo. It has its own challenges. For example, getting adoption across these clinics. The key piece here is integrating into the clinical workflow such that you're not adding overhead to the doctor's day. You know, there's apps where you have to log in on top of the EMR and they have abysmal adoption. It's very difficult when a doctor just cares about the patients coming in and that's exactly what they should care about. They shouldn't care about logging into another system and documenting something here, clicking some buttons here. That's horrible. And we would never want to do that. And so a lot of our time is spent on the provider adoption side. And that's ultimately where a winning company is going to have the strongest advantage. Yeah. So what kinds of services would be helpful to augment for a primary care provider in these clinics or clinician, social worker, et cetera? What are the opportunities here? And what do you think is most defensible? Yeah, I think it starts kind of looking at what wheel is getting reinvented across the industry. And so you can take inspiration from folks, Oak Street, Iora, Chen Med, Village MD. One of the things that even at Forward and One Medical, one of the things that I noticed is the way that work is getting done. A lot of the functions of the front office, the mid office medical assistant and the back office on the billing side was happening remotely in kind of centralized patient engagement or logistics centers. And so the first off is if it doesn't have to be done in the clinic, why should it be? If it doesn't truly have to be done there, and then you ask, you know, you can't obviously give a vaccine remotely. <laughs> you know, you, that has to be done in the clinic. Inventory management, the kind of coordination with the, the care coordination after the fact, it can all be done remotely and it can probably be done more effectively remotely because you can give that person the tools and the automation to help them scale their work and be really high touch. And so, for example, and I'll, maybe I'll just go into kind of a little bit, allude to a little bit of what Pair Team does. It starts off with, you know, data management. And then you have your scheduling and outreach and building patient relationships. And then you have care recommendations that should be surfaced based on best practices. You know, we have the U.S. Preventative Task Force that's been building out kind of best-in-class care plans based on a patient's health. And then you have the post-visit care coordination. So, for example, someone like Oak Street Health has a system called Canopy, which basically is procedure order entry where a doctor will make an order and it will then go to a remote care team to coordinate. And so that is really the opportunity is what are all these things that are getting reinvented and getting done by a person right now that really don't have to be? What I say to the team is we should, doctors, clinicians, staff should be there for patient care and patient engagement, building that patient relationship. Everything else should be automated from their perspective. So I have two follow-up questions or challenges potentially. The first question I have is, one of the big challenges in 
creating wraparound services is that people are terrified of the word transformation or change management. And you alluded to this as being a big challenge in terms of adoption. What feedback have you heard from providers on this actually being value additive, this meaning pair team or wraparound services versus distracting them throughout their day? Yeah. So we spend a lot of time in this and I won't go too much into it because a little bit of it is like been come through a lot of uh, sweat and tears. But one of the things that we do, let's start from a technology perspective. We work out of the EMR, we embed on top of it. But from a onboarding and clinic experience perspective, we tell them what they're no longer going to have to do. And so it's, you know, integrated into their clinical workflow so that they have to adjust support on things that are pain points like billing and documentation. We say, hey, you never have to go and look for what these codes are because we're just going to automatically surface them for you. And so right then and there, we're hitting this, oh, okay, that's, that's a good thing for me. And then they say, okay, so like, what do I have to change? And we're like, nothing. Just go into your EMR. Like it will just pop up. It will magically show up. And a lot of the technology has been around that to create that kind of magical experience for the doctor. It's a lot of UX, UI work. Um, it's in, you know, we, we have a product designer in-house who's amazing and we invest a lot here. And the other thing is coming in and asking them what their key challenges are and then solving that for them right away. It is being a partner for them. And then I would think the last one is a lot of other tech companies kind of fall flat here is the ROI to all levels of the clinic need to be pretty immediate. You need to be able to show value right away. So for example, from the front office staff, it is immediate because we start scheduling patients on day one. That is one less call that they have to make. That is one less person that they have to like reach out to. So we're just taking off, you know, we're saying, hey, we're making your life easier. You relax, focus on things in the clinic. Then for the doctors, as soon as we onboard them, the very next visit they have, they're able to see our tool and get their billing and documentation and care recommendation support. Ultimately, we say, if you had to do five clicks in your EMR, do one click in ours, and we will make sure that patient gets the lab. No patient will get lost to follow, which is, you know, kind of speaks to their, the passion. They want what's best for the patient. It's funny, Medicaid clinicians are actually pretty amenable if to, even if we were to have more clinical workflow changes, they're pretty amenable to it if it's ultimately the best thing for the patient. There kind of goes to that like passion economy, what drives them. And then for leadership here, we're immediately scheduling visits for them. So we schedule quality focused visits based on what unmet care needs, you know, prioritized based on the unmet care needs of their patient population. The second question I have is on the wraparound services point in Medicaid. So there are companies like CityBlock that are taking the full stack approach, and we know there are merits to that. On the wraparound services side, it seems like there's increasing interest in their space. So care team, obviously. Circulo is another company that sort of emerged from Stealth a few months ago as well. Can you talk through some of the differences in foci there? Yeah. I mean, I think there are tech-enabled MSOs. For example, Agilon Health is a big one in the area. Alteus, who now you know got acquired by Blue Shield, Blue Cross of California. And then there are folks like Circulo who are kind of approaching it from the actuarial, from the health plan side first. And then, you know, like maybe they'll spread into providers. But so far as I've seen, they're they're kind of sticking with the automation at the actuarial level initially. So I do think Circulo and, and R are kind of two different approaches until they start getting into the provider land, because I'll go back to it. The issue here is that health plans for decades now have had, you know, they're good at two things. They're good at data, data and data analytics, and they're good at contracting. And so what they've done in historically is they've said, hey, health plan, here's data analytics, and here's some 
data rosters for you to use, or hey, clinic, here's financial incentives, but the problem is the operational capabilities. That is the root of it. And so looking at these tech-enabled MSOs, I think it comes down to who you're targeting. And so far, I've yet to see kind of a MSOs that are focused on the Medicaid market. Because of the low margins, you have to do, you can't let a lot of the work live in human labor side, or you have to be able to scale your people a lot. So I would view that as a, as a distinction there. And then the other piece is just how like your interoperability tools. So the interoperability piece of it all is another aspect to it, where ultimately the automation that you can provide is rate limited by the data you have access to. And so, and that comes down to who you're contracting with. So if you're contracting with the health plan, you have access to health plan data. If you're contract with the provider, you have access to the provider data. We contract with both. And so we ultimately, we are built for the doctor's office. We're built for clinicians and the clinic. So we get their trust and their buy-in and we have access to their EMR, just like a remote medical assistant would have access to their EMR. That is one differentiating factor. And, you know, so to kind of who you're contracting with and who you're kind of building the automation for is a big one and how much you're relying on humans in all of this. That's a great segue to talking a little more specifically on what Pear does. So can you walk us through your product and business model and why they're different than Medicaid solutions that have come before you? Sure. So um, quick view of how Medicaid payments happen. You have about $450 PMPM on average for a Medicaid beneficiary. About uh, 5% of that is locked in state quality withholds. So from the state to health plan level, managed care organization level, 5% is in hitting some state-defined quality benchmarks. Again, these are not national, hyper-fragmented, but you you can imagine kind of the usual suspects here, various HEDIS metrics, childhood immunizations, mammographies, chlamydia screenings, um, a lot of preventative care, controlling blood pressure and hypertensive patients, controlling A1Cs and diabetic patients, et cetera. There is variability, but by and large, we are starting to get a little bit of conformity, although it hasn't been inked federally. And so what we do is we have our first approach to the market is helping these clinics drive revenue through quality incentives. They're overwhelmed right now. And by taking off of their plate things like data management, scheduling for who should be coming into the clinic, because ultimately we manage about 25% of a clinic's schedule. It's basically think of it like resource allocation of a doctor's time. Should historically these doctors have been kind of reactive to who comes in the door and who's sick at the time and they haven't been able to just pull their heads out of being overwhelmed out of the sand and figure out who is that prioritized list of patients. We're able to do that for them and thus help increase their quality scores, which helps drive revenue. It's low margin, but what is interesting here is that any improvement is actually a stark like 20, 30, 40% improvement over baseline revenue because the margins are so low as is. So any improvement is massive and actually makes a huge difference to the clinic. So we were able to drive revenue improvements by about 20% in our clinics through just quality incentives because these clinics are overwhelmed and not able to focus on it after we do this. So that's kind of our our go-to-market strategy on the financial side. And then after we do this, we are working with a health plan to start looking at risk management. Ultimately, Medicaid is going to be moving into risk management in the same way that Medicare Advantage has moved into risk management. So think risk adjustment factors, all of that, and kind of new ways to get paid. And so 
Medicaid clinics are going to have to build that competency and we want to be ahead of the curve there. How does this differ from other RPA or CM solutions that exist in the market? Is it that you focus on a specific set of providers or is the technology inherently different? So two things I would say are our key differentiators. One is the business model. We go at risk with the clinics. We have, you know, they don't have any, they don't have any cash on hand. So we don't even assume that we can, you know, get any, come up with an upfront cost. And we just go, hey, if we are not able to drive revenue for you, we don't get paid. And then we do a revenue share with the clinic. On the back end, we also have a revenue share with these health plans. And so that's one side of it, just like the business model, making it really, really easy to say yes on the provider adoption front. That again is going to be where these companies go to deliver die. Everyone's going to want to say, yeah, you know, health plans will say for sure. It's whether the clinics will adopt you. This is one of the mechanisms we, do, we use. And then additionally, we're not just RPA. We're not in RPA for, for everyone listening, robotic process automation. Think all of AI as kind of a leading innovator in the space on inpatient care here. We aren't just RPA. We use RPA for the provider adoption so that we can integrate our technology without disrupting their clinical workflow. But we have people. And ultimately, it is patient engagement that is going to be a key, to go back to your question of defensibility, is going to be the key differentiator and defensible aspect of our business, because that's the hard part. Like anyone can build tools and not to minimize it, but there's no stopping anyone else from coming and building this RPA functionality. But once you've established trust with the patient, hey, this is the phone number that is secretly pair team, but it's white labeled as the clinic. And here's my like text thread that I've had with the care navigator that again, looks like the clinic, but is from pair team. That's really hard to break once we're entrenched in the clinic and that patient relationship, the relationship that clinic has with that patient. That's also the hard part. I have a question around, maybe it's a little bit of a chicken and egg. So you mentioned you contract with both health plans and providers. Providers, it makes sense you're trying to help them increase revenue by helping them meet their quality metrics. On the health plan side, what's the value prop to them? Is your go-to-market strategy that you contract with health plans first and then go to providers in their network? How does that work? So initially, we just had to contract directly with providers. Like Our initial focus was, let's prove out value creation. Let's show that we can actually create value with these clinics, drive revenue for them through quality incentives, and reduce workload for their clinicians. And we did that. When we go to the health plans, those quality incentives, so starting at the very top of the premium dollars that are available to the health plan, 5% are locked in state quality withholds. By supporting the quality incentives at the clinic level, that actually translates up to the health plan in a greater magnitude. So if you think of the 5% of quality incentives, only a portion of that trickles down to the provider. And that's what we were working with historically. So by going to the health plan and saying, hey, we are going to help align the operations of your provider network with your priorities and the priorities of the state to help you increase your revenue that comes from these state quality withholds. You just have to point at which clinics and kind of give us a warm intro and then we'll go and you know, bring them on board. That's our job. That's margin for them. These health plans are operating on, I mean, a good one is at 1% margin. And so if you compare 1% margin to the 5% that's locked in state quality withholds, we're looking at the ability, you know, if we're in, if we're in one fifth of their provider network, we're going to be increasing their margin by 20%, like their baseline margin by 20%. So it is just, it kind of goes back to the, you know, relative improvements with these amount of dollars here. Right. Yeah. And even at the unit level of the economics are very slim. It's a volume play. Like as, as you amass more providers and patients, it just, it makes more sense. Exactly. And you can do it because you're asset light. You're using a lot of technology in the RPA to kind of keep costs low and we don't yeah. need to buy buildings. 
Yeah. I hear that's very capital intensive. So <laughs> you talked a little bit about some of the tasks that you're focusing on today around annual visits or screenings, et cetera, making sure that patients are scheduled and actually coming in for their visit. What is in the pipeline for work streams or domains that you would like to automate for the provider? Yeah. I mean, so right now it's not very sexy. It's like all of the button clicks that you have to do, for example, to California has a vaccine and immunization registry. It's like, well, there's no API for that, but like, let's just make it so that no human has to do that anymore because we know the vaccine got delivered at the clinic side. As soon as you put it into the EMR, it should automatically go up. Things like that. It's, there's no real silver bullet with all of this. It's a lot of small kind of, and, and if you look at a small win, so if you look at a clinic too, it's, there's no single thing that's taking a bunch of time. It's like death by a thousand cuts. And this is why we're slowly in just like fixing one thing by one thing. I will say that in the future, I do hope that we can start involving more parts of the care team. So right now we're very much on the administrative service, but folks like Iora, Oak Street have shown that if you augment and provide a clinician with a virtual pharmacist or a virtual NP or a virtual RN to help support them or a virtual dietitian, you can really improve patient care for their panel. And so that would be kind of the next step. And, and um, although it's, we're going to kind of see how automation and the people side of that look there, but that's where we're, we're going towards. That's fascinating. I feel like all the problems around physician burnout that we hear are because of not the acuity of care they're providing, but this death by a thousand cuts problem. And I've not seen many companies that are targeting that entire landscape because it's hard. You like have to figure out what is a clinician clicking on at this given time and why, and like, let's build that into our solution. So I want to talk about Pear's history as a company. So for listeners, you all were founded in 2019, went through Y Combinator, and then emerged from Stealth just a few months ago in December of 2020. But it sounds like Pear actually started a direct primary care company and then pivoted towards more automation focused on Medicaid clinics to start. What prompted that? And can you walk through that journey a little bit? Yeah, sure. This is actually, I love the direct primary care market and everyone who works in it. They're kind of like a tribe. It's a bunch of like rebellious doctors who are sick of the system and they just want to start their own clinics and provide great patient care. And they do it on a total out of pocket, 50 to 75, maybe a hundred dollars a month per patient. And they're treating pretty needy, needy patients that really need that care. So we found this market just kind of Honestly, it was a lot of digging and then, and then kind of stumbled into it and noticed a couple of things from a entrepreneurial perspective that makes it really attractive. It's one, risk takers by nature. These doctors have decided not to go the traditional route of going working with the health system or going fee for service or something like that. And they're starting their own clinic and they're starting their own clinic in this direct primary care model. So risk taking, check. They are also single decision owners at the clinic. Uh, you know, the boss is the physician there. And so you have alignment of, hey, if, if we're doing what's best for the patient, then let's talk. And so it made it kind of, for those reasons, it was simple to build out an MVP and start providing really great patient care. We learned a lot during that time. We knew that direct primary care, although, you know, it's a small and growing market. I think it's, you know, kind of TBD on whether it takes off or not and becomes kind of mainstream. But, and, and for that reason, we kind of knew that this was a, you know, we'd always stay in direct primary care and then kind of grow into adjacent markets like Medicaid. But as we were going through it, saw a couple of things I didn't really expect. And I think I mentioned this to you earlier is direct primary care has this 
this connotation of concierge because you're going out of pocket costs. It's like, oh, this is for rich people. But really, we found a lot of chronic and Medicaid patients going to these direct primary care clinics. And this is because in the system that we have, if you got to go see a doctor two or three times in a month and your health insurance plan isn't great, then your out-of-pocket costs are going to exceed that of $50 a month. And so it only makes sense for you to go, hey, let me just get a doc that I can call and text anytime for $50 a month, as opposed to going to see you know, a more local generic doctor on the fee-for-service system and spend more than that for lower quality care. And so we ended up treating a variety of pretty sick and patients that really needed the, um, the high-touch engagement. And so it segued very nicely into the Medicaid market, much more than my intuition would have expected. Yeah. So what does growth look like for the team? I know you're, you're live with the payer, as I understand it. You have a couple more coming down the pipeline. Can you talk a little bit more around your commercial roadmap? So this is one where we're trying to focus. You know, we have a plan to basically focus on national health plans. So ultimately, once we've created value and been able to show that value at the clinic level, now we can approach health plans and say, health plans, if you scale us out within your provider network, we'll be able to help them align their operations and support them to provide better patient care for your population. And so we're working with, we're going to be piloting with a health plan out in California, another one out in the East Coast. And this has all happened pretty rapidly. You know, I would say over just two months, these conversations have gone from initial call to, hey, let's pilot. Part of that is because of the fact that they really don't have many levers to pull. Like I said, they've already tried to pull the data sharing and financial incentive levers, and it's still not working. So when we talk to them, they it really grabs their attention, particularly with this the growing Medicaid spend demand. The states are kind of demanding more from their managed care organizations because of COVID enrollment and all of that. But there's also issues of systemic health inequity that are, you know, that have you know had a spotlight shined on them. So there's a lot of pressure on these managed care organizations. Growth looks like us going and and we kind of have a playbook of going state by state to help these Medicaid managed care organizations prove themselves in the eyes of the state and ultimately by addressing unmet care needs. So if we look at the number of patients that we have in our pipeline from a provider side, it's about 70,000 patients that we have not deployed into. Like we just caught on to all this traction. We're trying to, <laughs> Cassie and myself, we're trying to figure out how do we grow the team? How can we do this responsibly? Uh, we have a services component, so it isn't just tech. We can't just hit play and, and, and blast a bunch of clinics. And then that's from the provider side. From the payer side, it's quite a few more. These are, these are national health plans with, I won't give an exact number, but in the hundreds plus thousands of, of patients that would be at a, uh, within our purview of scaling into. So my last question around payer is on scale. And I think this is a good segue talking about your growth roadmap. If your solution inherently is automating all these individual clicks that a single provider has at their clinic, which may be unique to the state, given that you're operating in a Medicaid market, is it really possible to scale all of those thousands of interactions across all of your provider base as you enter these new markets? And, and how are you thinking about that problem? The maybe could have mentioned this earlier, but the set of things that happen in a clinic, it is death by a thousand cuts, but they're also like a set of core building blocks that a clinic needs to do. Scheduling a patient outreach, follow appointments, referrals, imaging coordination, lab coordination, medication coordination. And there's, there's a finite set of those. And those might be done in different ways. 
And this is kind of where the defensibility comes in. You've got to implement, you know, kind of the new, hey, I've got to go to this state department's website and automate, you know, kind of the interaction there, or I've got to go to this health systems website and kind of automate the, you know, interaction there. But ultimately it comes down to these, from a technology perspective, this like well-defined API (laughs) in a way. And there is no support. We're just going to be growing the kind of interoperability underneath it all. We're going to be growing the number of interactions that the bots need to take. But the problem set is well-defined. It might be different across each state, but, but ultimately at an operational level, there are a set of core things that we need to do well. So my last question for you for this conversation is around your own personal leadership story. Are there certain principles that have helped you navigate the business model pivot going through covid all the different crises that you've had to experience as a CEO through, you know, the two years of Pair Team so far? Yeah, too many to count. I've made so many mistakes. There are a couple of, well, one book that really comes to mind is 15 Commitments of, of Conscious Leadership. It has this notion of there's a line and you want to be above or you are below the line. If you are above the line, you are open, you are curious, you are okay with being wrong. And you're just trying to figure out, hey, what's right? Trying to understand the other person. And then when you're below the line, you're closed, defensive, you want to be understood, you care no more about being understood and being right than understanding the other person. And it has this really nice, it puts this really nice imagery in my head where I can go, am I above or below the line right now? And you kind of have to set this expectation with other people around you so that they can ask you, hey, Neil, I think you're under the line right now. And you kind of, you kind of stop, you go, oh, maybe I am. Like, let me take a pause for a second and be like, I am, because it does get tense. Like I hate to say, like voices get raised, like things are tense. There's a lot of passion when building a company, especially when you have a co-founder. We have disagreeing, a lot of different opinions and all of that. We love each other to death, but because of that, we can also hate each other to death at certain times too. But ultimately there's this like deep respect between the two of us. So that's been one kind of guiding principle. The other is, so I'm my, my failure modes are, I can be very empathetic and want to be liked. And someone very early on told me in that situation, you need to imagine, because you want to be kind of like a people pleaser, you want to imagine your company as another person sitting at the table. And how would they feel if you were looking out for yourself and not the company, that person there, and kind of put a, a face to this abstract thing that is pair team. And then I will ask people very explicitly, I'm like, what is the best thing for pair? Like, hey, we're at this juncture. What is the best thing for pair? Is the best thing for pair for you to do this thing? Like if there's, let's say two people want to do this like project or something like that, it's like, what is the best thing for pair? Let's evaluate that. And it allows it to remove the individual and just make it a little bit more, less, less ego filled in all of it, including mine. And then I do have a coach that I work with. He helped me figure out one of my biggest, he, he calls it a saboteur, which is your tendencies that are self-destructive. And I will preface it with any tendency is both a blessing and a curse. If you take it to any extreme, mine is hypervigilance. And hypervigilance, on the good side, you can imagine Andy Groves, only the paranoid survive. I'm constantly thinking, you know, about the next steps after, after we kind of have clarity, I'm always thinking about the next step. And, you know, it allows me to kind of feel prepared in kind of as we move this company forward. But on the flip side, hypervigilance can create an intensity in a conversation if the other person isn't thinking about this, but I'm thinking about this. And then I kind of like jump on them and start being really intense or starting using a lot of anxious energy to get them to think about something that I really care about or think is important, but 
it hasn't been conveyed that well. And that can be difficult to work with. And so that is a constant check for me. I actually have a journal that I use. It's called a hypervigilance journal. And anytime I do it, I will write down, I'm like, ah, oh, crap, I was, <laughs> I was anxious about this thing. And I kind of jumped on someone and shouldn't have done that. I'm, I'm going to go apologize and, and kind of tell them I, I see the error of my ways. But even the act of writing the journal has made it a lot easier to grow as a leader. I've kind of been learning as we go, but that's definitely something that's going to stay with me for a while is this hypervigilance and, and controlling my anxious energy, which can be good when put in the right direction. But if I don't keep a tab on it, it will burn me out and burn the people around me out. Yeah. No, thank you for being so open. I think all of us have similar tendencies and it's so important and really respectable that you're this self-aware and are actively working on these things as you're building an incredible product at a company with a fantastic mission. So thank you so much for your time today, Neil. I really appreciate it and look forward to seeing Pear's success over the coming years. Thank you so much, Sandy. It was a, it was a pleasure. Glad to see this. 